I want to welcome you into the Sunday Preaching Podcast of the Point Church, located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. Grab your Bible, you do that, and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as we continue in the series through the book of 1 Corinthians, in the series that we've entitled Christianity and Culture, and in these first five or six chapters, we are focusing on the importance, the importance of the unity of the church. Today we're going to focus on the centrality of the preached Word of God, that the church is unified around the need and the call for the Word of God to be preached very clearly uh, in our gatherings. So we're going to look today at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and then uh, in a minute I'm going to have you flip over to Acts chapter 18. If you want to just go over there and put your finger there because these two chapters certainly uh, tie together. Uh, how many of you enjoy this time of the year? Uh, certainly Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, uh, but March Madness is also a wonderful time of the year. How many have been watching basketball the last few days? All right, if you, uh, we had somebody over at our house last night and uh, we were sitting there. They didn't care one bit about who was playing or whose team, and uh, Blake and I, we were all watching it, you know. Uh, but if you know anything about the NCAA tournament, they pick 68 teams. Uh, they have what they call play-in games uh, for four teams. And then they come into the 64. And then there's four regions, and there's 16 seeds in each region. And so if you're a one seed, you're really good. If you're a 16 seed, you just barely made it in there, okay? You're just glad to be there. As a matter of fact, I, I saw somebody joking this week. If you're a 16 seed, you just show up for the first game and you don't even bring a second change of clothes because you know you're going home, right? And so there were a couple of teams that played on Wednesday night. Uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey is a very small school of about 3,000 people. Uh, they actually weren't even supposed to be in the NCAA tournament. Uh, in their conference, another team won the regular season and the tournament, uh, but because of some NCAA probation issues, they let the second place team go. So they really didn't even earn their way into the tournament. So they go to Dayton, Ohio, they're doing a play-in game, and uh, they actually win their game. And so now they're a 16 seed officially, and they get put into the tournament on Friday night playing a number one seed, the Purdue Boilermakers from Indiana. Can I just say today I'm thankful I'm not a Purdue fan right now because Purdue's had a really good team this year. They've been ranked number one. Uh, Fairleigh Dickinson, their team, their average height is six foot three, and Purdue has a center that's seven foot four. And so, uh, you know, this guy's just really tall. And so everybody's going, okay, this is going to be a joke. On top of that, the Fairleigh Dickinson coach, uh, if you've ever coached or been in sports, know that he made a mistake in the locker room on Wednesday night after they won their first game to get to play Purdue, they've got the video camera rolling in the locker room, and he says, all right, all right, all right, guys, listen up now. We, we, we watched tape of Purdue, and I'm telling you, we're going to beat them on Friday night. So America, for two days, is making fun of this guy. 
how silly, okay, get the picture, Fairleigh Dickinson, 3,000 students, Purdue, 50,000 students, Goliath versus David, and this guy says, oh, we're going to beat him. And everybody's going, nobody, you're a clown, okay? It's not, there's no way. You're, you, what you're going to do is you're going to actually make the other team really mad because you said that, and then they're going to beat your brakes off. Well, guess what? He was a prophet. On Friday night, Fairleigh Dickinson University, 3,000 students, sent the Giants home, and they beat Purdue. It was, it was just an, an amazing thing. Now, I'll tell you that little story because of this. That guy said that in that locker room on Wednesday night, and everybody said, you are a fool. You shouldn't have said that. That is never going to happen. That's not true, and you know it. Last Sunday, we were in verses 18 to 31 of chapter 1, where Paul says that the preaching, the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, to the secular world that hears it, they say, that's foolish, that's silly, that, that doesn't make any sense, that can't be accurate. I would also go back to the time of our Lord's ministry here on earth, where he said that I would rise from the grave on the third day. And he also said, I will come again. And you and I are gathered here in this place today because we believe that what Jesus said, it does come to pass. We know that he rose from the grave on the third day. We'll celebrate Easter here in a few weeks. And you and I know, no matter how much the world scoffs or thinks it's silly or we're weak-minded, we know that when Jesus said, I will come again, that he is coming again. The most important thing today is that we are ready for that moment. So I want to ask you today, has there been a moment in your life when you have knelt at the cross, you've repented of your sins, you, you've acknowledged, I'm a sinner, sin is to miss the mark, sin is to uh, violate the commands and the laws of a holy and a righteous God. Have you ever humbled yourself and acknowledged, I am a sinner? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you confessed your sin and confessed him as the Lord? If you've done that, then you know that you are a part of the body of Christ. And the next event on God's calendar is that Jesus is coming again. So the question we wrestle with often is, what do we do in the meantime? Now that we're a part of the church, we're a part of the body of Christ, Paul is bringing this church here in Corinth to the realization that whatever you do, as the world is in chaos in division, as things are chaotic, whatever you do, the body of Christ, it must be unified. And so for these weeks, I'm calling on the Point Church for us to stay in the unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we continue on in chapter 2 today, and I'll keep moving with you as we look at three statements about the unity that we have in Christ and the unity we need in the church. Number one, Paul gives a uh, historical word in regards to his preaching and his teaching ministry. If we're going to have unity in the church, there must be preaching of the Word of God. The Word of God must be proclaimed. Look at what Paul says in verse number one, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come 
proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So Paul makes a reference to that first time he came to Corinth. Look in Acts chapter 18 with me, and I want you just to to, to connect of what happened when he came. He said, when I arrived, I came to you and I was doing this. I was making a proclamation, a proclamation of the testimony of God. Now, in some of your translations, uh, that word testimony there might be the word mystery, the mystery. That mystery is the mystery of the Messiah. The Jews have been looking and are still looking for the Messiah to come. Uh, Thankfully, some have seen that Christ is the Messiah and have believed on the Lord. But there's this mystery. It's the mystery of the ages. Paul uses that word several times in his New Testament writings. And you and I know that the mystery now has been unfolded. It has been unpacked. That Jesus came and he is the Messiah. He came, though, not to be a great military leader uh, for the Jewish people to deliver them from Roman oppression or from some of their enemies that surrounded them, but rather he came, our hero, our king, came not to be a great military leader, but he came to die on a cross. Now, the world thinks that's crazy. Our hero died. He was crucified. The world says, well, that means he was defeated or he lost. Oh, no, friends, you and I know that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't lose. He won the greatest victory, the victory for the world, our salvation. And so Paul says, I come to you declaring this mystery, and I did not do it with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, let's look at context again real quick. Corinth is a place of philosophy. It's a place of oration. Uh, These great educated uh, people would show up and they would gather in the public square and they would give their philosophy, their ideology. And and, and Paul says, you know, I didn't come to you. I'm not here to match speaking abilities with people in the world. Now look in Acts chapter 18, verse number 1. Remember that Paul has just left Athens. How many of you read the book of Acts? Wave at me. How many remember Acts chapter 17 when Paul was in Athens and he went to Mars Hill or he went to the Areopagus, okay? That was the place where uh, there were these statues or these monuments to the different gods. And then on the end, uh, they had a monument to the unknown God. And it was like, okay, this monument is here just in case we've left somebody out, okay, to the unknown God. And so Paul uh, on the Areopagus walks up to the statue and he says, hey, can I, can, can I have your attention here? I, I want to tell you about the unknown God And he begins to tell them, of course, about the God of the Bible, the God you and I know, a Jehovah God. And so he finishes up in Athens. Where does he go? He goes in chapter 18 uh, to Corinth. I want you to look back, though, in his conversation. This is not going to be on the screen. I want you to look back, though, at what the men of Athens said to him in chapter 17. Uh, Look in verse number 18. It says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers They were conversing with Paul, and some said, look at this, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, they took him, they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Verse 20, For 
you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now look at me, Christian. You are trying today to live out the gospel and speak the gospel to a secular world that says you're talking about some strange things, strange things. The same thing that's happened to Paul on Mars Hill is the same thing happening to us today. Uh, Next Sunday, Dr. Johnson will be preaching uh, from chapter 2, and he'll be talking about uh, the end of the chapter there where it says that the natural man does not understand the things of God, neither can he. The natural man is not even capable of understanding the gospel and sin and the way of the cross. And so, and so don't be shocked when the world thinks you're silly or you're foolish or, as we looked at last week, you're moronic to uh, believe the gospel. And so they did it to Paul, and they'll, they'll do it to us. So now Paul goes to Corinth, chapter 18, verse number 1, and, he, and I want you to read it with me. Follow along. It'll be on the screen. After this, Paul left Athens. And he went to Corinth. So watch. He leaves one place of oration, big speakers, powerful philosophers, and he ends up in Corinth, and he has the same thing. But he goes, and he finds a Jew named Aquila. He's a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. You've heard of Aquila and Priscilla. Paul connects with them. He went to see them, and because... He was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so we look at Paul here and we say, you know, Paul was a bivocational. He was a missionary. He's a pastor here. He's working with Aquila and Priscilla making tents. And then it says in verse number four that he would reason in the synagogue every Sabbath. Now, I said to someone this morning, more than one person, uh, we're going to Israel this week. Of course, the Sabbath will be Friday night at 6 o'clock, and it'll go to 6 o'clock Saturday, and that's when everything shuts down. Uh, matter of fact, in the elevators over there, they won't even let you push the button, okay, because that's considered work. You don't get coffee on Saturday morning because somebody had to plug in the, uh, the coffee pot, all right? Sabbath is rest. You don't work, and it says that during this, this time of Sabbath that Paul is going into the synagogue. What is he doing in there? The end of verse number four, he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And so I want to be very clear here. Paul was a smart dude. He was at the top of his class. Um, No doubt Paul could speak fairly well. He He could get a clear gospel and a clear teaching out. But I want you to notice that that he is persuading both the Jews and the Greeks. I don't have time for this, but I did a word study on the word persuade. And I want to be very clear, this word, the implication here is not like he was twisting their arms or trying to force them into a belief system or something, but he's making the case. And and I remind you, Christian, that your Bible says that you, you need to be prepared to give an answer or a defense. The word there is apologetics, apologia. Uh, You need to be able to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And so Paul's just sharing his testimony. He's sharing what happened to him. He's wanting to see uh, folks, many of them, come to Christ. Uh, Verse number five, keep going. It says that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, so he's got his his co-labors in the ministry, his friends who are there to stand beside him and, and do ministry with him. Paul is occupied with the word. 
He's testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. His message is, you've been looking for the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He died on a cross. He rose on the third day. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah that you've been looking for. Now, hear me today. We always need to be mindful of when you and I proclaim the gospel, we're going to get a variety of responses. Wouldn't it be cool if everybody we shared the gospel with, they just fell down and repented and believed on Jesus? I mean, we found out that doesn't happen. You know, people have different emotions, right? Some people think, oh, you're silly, you're weak-minded. Or some people are contemplative. Aren't you thankful for that? They're listening. The Holy Spirit's taking truth, and the Spirit of God in their heart is working on them, and hopefully they'll come to a point where they believe on Jesus and are saved. There are some people that just get ticked off about it, and they'll say things to you like, don't ever bring that up again. I don't want to ever hear you say another word about that. So here's Paul being faithful to do what God has called him to do, and this is the response he gets. A look in verse number 6. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. I mentioned Crispus to you about three Sundays ago. Uh, He's born again by God's grace. His family is born again. Then he goes on to say, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Can we just get excited right there and say amen? God's building his church. It's God's church. God builds his church. So what he calls us to do is is not to make things happen. I think sometimes uh, this week I was in a conversation with someone. Sometimes I think churches just clown it up and get too pragmatic, and it's like we've got to make something happen. No, God is the one that makes it happen. What what he asked us, he never asked me to make anything happen. What he asked me to do is to be faithful and to be obedient. It's the same thing in your life. Just be faithful. Paul's being reviled. At the same time, lo and behold, the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, is saved. His entire family is saved. Many other people are saved and baptized. And so Paul is, is, is no doubt feeling that tension of pushback at the same time seeing the fruit of his ministry. I want you to look at verse number 9. It says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Paul, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Paul, I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. And notice this next phrase really ministered to my soul. You ought to underline it in your Bible. Paul, you got to keep going. Here's the reason you got to keep going. I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed there for 18 months teaching the word of God among them. 
Now, in just a minute, we're going to get back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I wanted you to see these 11 verses because they tie in very clearly with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It is obvious that Paul had some fear in his heart. And so God comes to him in the middle of the night and he says, Paul, listen to me, listen to me. Don't you be afraid. Don't you be afraid. Here's the reason you shouldn't be afraid, Paul. I am with you. I'm not going to let anybody hurt you. I'm not going to let anybody attack you. And I'll tell you why. There's a work to be done here. I've got something I want you to do. There's going to be fruit in your labors. What I want you to do is not be focused on the crowd. Don't be focused on the criticism. Don't be focused on the pushback. What I want you to focus on is what I've called you to do, and that is you don't be silent. You preach the word because there's people in the city that I'm going to save and bring into the church, into the family of God because of your faithfulness to your calling. Paul, you just preach the word. Preach the word. I know you're not the pastor today, but I'm going to tell you something. That ministered to my heart this week. As I was studying, preach the word. Paul said to Timothy, he's challenging Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. Timothy, you preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Timothy, get up in front of the people, convince them, rebuke them, exhort them with all long-suffering and teaching. Junior Hill wrote a book several years ago entitled Out of Season. I mentioned this Sunday night over at the Jackson campus where he said it just seems like that preaching, true biblical preaching is, is out of season. And I, every week of my ministry, I feel this and I hear this, that Christian people are starving for the preached word of God. The call upon a proclaimer, a pastor, a preacher, is not to give psychology and opinions and worldly philosophies and ideologies, but a pastor-preacher is to give the word. It is the work and the business of the pastor to preach the word. Jonathan Edwards said, the work and business of ministers of the gospel is as it were that of servants to wash and cleanse the souls of men. How is that done? It is to be done by the preaching of the word, which is their main business. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 5.26 that it is through the, the preaching of the word that we are cleansed, that we are helped, that we are made well. The church today needs to stand very clearly and boldly, no matter about the, the, the clutter, and I'll say more about that in just a minute, or the chaos or the pushback, the, the, the church needs to be unified. I'm talking about the true body of Christ. The church needs to be unified about the centrality of the preached Word of God. Some of you have heard the name J.I. Packer. Packer said, without the authority of the Word, preaching becomes an endless search for topics and therapies and techniques that will win people's approval. It will promote acceptance. It will advance a cause or it will soothe a worry. He went on to say that human reason and social agendas and popular consensus and personal moral convictions become the resources of preaching that lacks the historic conviction that what Scripture says, God says. When we read the Word of God out loud, when we mine for its truths, we are hearing with our ears what God has said. 
hear me today. It's settled in my soul deeply that this is the inspired Word of God, that it is God-breathed. This is from God. Dr. Brian Chappell, who's a Presbyterian pastor, great preacher, expositor, in his book on preaching, he makes the note that, that actually what I'm doing now is actually the second sermon. He calls it the second sermon. Because the first sermon is the work of the Holy Spirit, and the last sermon is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave us the inspired word. And now I'm just given the truth of it, and the Holy Spirit takes the truth of that word and brings illumination into our hearts as Christians. And then as we hear the word, that word washes over us and it changes us. And it draws us to Christ and it draws us to the gospel. It really is that simple, church, about the unity of our church is that we are craving that washing of the word in unity. We know the Holy Spirit has spoken and we know the Holy Spirit is speaking today. It's illumination. And so the effectiveness of this moment is not measured by my personality or by my homiletical abilities or even by a show of hands at the end of the service. The only fruit that is born that really lasts, that bears eternal fruit, is by the work of the Holy Spirit. So what we're called to do is to proclaim the Word, proclaim the Scriptures. What is preaching? Preaching is proclamation. Proclaim the word. I remember my professor from college years ago. He used to say to us young preachers who thought we knew so much, but we knew so little. He used to say, boys, when you get up, have something to say. What do we have to say? We have the word of God. We need to preach the word. We need to preach Christ crucified and the cross. And all God's people said. Number two in this text. When it comes to the unity of the Word, not only do we need to preach the Word, but we need to cut through the noise. I love verse number two. If I were to pick out a verse in these five that really spoke to me, verse number two really resonated with me. Where Paul said this, I decided, I made my mind up to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Imagine, if you will, that Paul is hearing all kinds of philosophies and opinions. He's obviously dealing with a church that's got problems and issues that he's trying to address. And what you see in Paul's ministry here is that he is constantly bringing the church back to the gospel constantly bringing the church back to the cross. Paul said, I'm not going to get in every little issue, I'm not going to have conversations about every new orator or every new ideology or every new philosopher. I'm going to stay laser focused. Paul was dealing with a culture just like you and I are today. How many of you have noticed there's a lot of people talking And a lot of people have things to say and have opinions. And the truth is, there are some people talking today, they're winsome in their presentation, they're overwhelming in their appeal to some, in that what they're saying is like people just hang on every word they say, and 
And, and I don't know about you, but, but I found it's really easy to get over into all kinds of things that people are talking about. Wouldn't it be just like the enemy? Wouldn't it be just like the devil to get the body of Christ off talking about a whole lot of things and not keeping the gospel central in our conversations? We got to cut through the noise. Over these last three or four years, I say this, I don't need your your sympathy at all, but I want you to hear me. I live in the pastor world. I talk to a whole lot of pastors. I sit in meetings with pastors. We have these conversations literally weekly, and you know what we do? We sit around and we kind of laugh because we all go through the same thing. You know why? Because people are people. Over these last three or four years, there's been so many markers along the way where people in and around the church have the mindset that I got to say something. You gotta say you gotta say something. You gotta say something. You gotta get up and say something. And I tell you what I've learned in my gospel ministry. One of the best things I can do when something happens is to shut my mouth and be quiet. And to pray and seek the Lord and seek for discernment. Because if we're not careful, we'll get off on tangents and rabbit trails that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I got one amen right there. We'll get off until we're literally exhausted and have no oxygen left in our brain talking about things in this culture. We'll talk about politics and medicine and ideologies and philosophies until we're exhausted and we ain't led nobody to Jesus. We ain't shared the gospel with anybody. And we have, quote, ministers today who are standing up in the pulpit And quite honestly, I thank God from the depths of my soul. I love my brothers in Christ who are preaching the gospel, and I'm cheering them on. I get texts on Sunday morning. I text others. Just, man, if you're preaching the word, get up and preach the word. But I'm going to tell you, we got some of the goofiest stuff being preached today. Goofy stuff. That's not of God. It's worldly ideologies and philosophies. And we sit around and we rationalize this and that and talk about this and that. And what I'm called to do is to preach the word, the authoritative word of God, line upon line and precept upon precept. As one lady who visited my dear friend Casey Bradford's church a few weeks ago, as she was walking out the door, she said to one of the deacons, he's a dinosaur, he needs to get up with the times. If he thinks he's just going to get up there and preach the Bible every week. You know what? He's just doing what he's called to do. Preach the word. Preach the word. Cut through the noise. Christian, in your life, there's so much noise. Anybody in the last few days just had the thought, man, if I could just have a Coleman camping chair and a quiet stream and a book and a cup of coffee in my Bible, I'd just like to go somewhere and sit down and just catch myself. You know why we have those thoughts? Because the noise overwhelms us. We get, we get anxiety and we get angst and we get overwhelmed by the chaos that is around us. And God is calling his church today to just simply cut through the noise, to cut through the noise and to be unified around the gospel. I want you to know that the enemy can't do anything about your eternal salvation. He can't do anything about our eternal life. He can't stop the church of the living God. 
I'm going to be at Caesarea Philippi this week, and I, I love teaching Matthew 16. Jesus said, you're Peter. Upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we're not losing today. We're winning. Jesus has already won. But I want to be very clear. I'm going to tell you what the devil can do. The devil can cause division in the church. The devil is not of God. God's not the author of fear. God's not the author of confusion. The devil loves to cause division in a church. And if you're not careful, he'll use you to do it. I had one of the most interesting conversations this week with a guy. And he starts telling me about this podcast he's listening to where there's a man, uh, and I meant to bring his name up here with me, and I forgot to, to bring it. If you want to fact check me, you can fact check me. He has a name. So, so this dude, this dude is, a, is a high priest in the satanic church. So he's on this podcast, and apparently, apparently he's been born again. He's been saved. Praise God for that. But, but he's telling in this podcast that about certain things that happened, and here's what he said he did. He said him and some of the others decided that what they would do is, is, is that they would go into churches and cause division. He says that he went to a Baptist church. He walked in and he talked the lingo. Praise the Lord, you know, whatever. And, and he just fit right in. And he said, here's what I did. He said, I, this guy had a, has a lot of money, had a really nice fishing boat. So he said, here's what I did. I picked out two deacons in the church. And so he said, I took the first deacon out of my boat. He said, we're out there deep sea fishing. We're standing there and we're, we're yakking back and forth, you know. And he says, um, he says, yeah, I wanted to ask you. Well, no, never mind, never mind. I'm, I'm going to keep fishing. And the, no, the guy's like, well, no, no, go ahead. You can ask me anything you want to ask me. He said, you know, did, did, I, I just heard that called the other guy's name. He said that he had said something about you and, you know. And so this guy's standing there like, oh, really? You know, what, what, what do you? So they start going back and forth about this. So this guy plants the seed in this guy's heart about this other deacon in the church that he had said something about him. So he says, you know what I did the next Saturday? Got my boat, and I took the other deacon with me out, deep sea fishing. Got him out there. We're out there fishing. Did the exact same thing to that deacon. Got those two deacons crossways with each other. Got their wives crossways. It ended up causing division in the church. He tells another story. I don't know if I even told, told you all this one. He tells another story about how a lady went into the Baptist church with the mission with the mission of bringing one of the pastors down morally. That's why she was there. It was her mission. You don't think the devil doesn't work like that? You don't think the devil's not out to, to destroy us, to bring division in the body of Christ? You know how many churches I hear about just... How many churches I hear about today that are just, you know, they're sitting around, they're fussing about all the end times and Calvinism and just, I mean, like just having these wars. And I, and I, and I flip through my Bible and, and I read a verse that says, hereby will the world know that you're my disciples. What does it say? Because you're theologically smart and you know it. That's not what it says. It says, people will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. 
So I just want to ask you today, how well are you loving Jesus? And how well are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Oh, there's a place to talk about theology. I love it. I love it. I love a good cup of coffee and talk theology. I love it. But we always do it in a spirit of grace, graciousness, and kindness to help one another in our walk and our journey, to love each other. But you know what the devil wants to do? He wants to bring disunity. He wants to divide. He wants there to be noise. So we're distracted. We call that in pastoral ministry. Let's, let's go sideways with our energy instead of straightforward with our energy, which is the kingdom and the mission of God that he has called us to. Am I speaking to Christians today that believe we have a mission in the kingdom? So let's stop. Let's stop wasting energy on sideways things. And let's get busy doing what God has called us to do. Cut through the noise. Paul says, I've made my mind up. I've made a judgment. I've made a decision. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified. All of you who want me to finish my sermon, raise your hand. Because I'm at my last point. Look at verse number three. Such an important point here. Just please give me your best ears for five minutes, will you? I think Paul says here when it comes to the unity of the church, Paul says we all need to settle. We need to settle in the power of God. Settle. Let me show you why I use the word settle. Look at verse number three. Pointing back to Acts chapter 18, he says, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. Now, the word weakness there really is the word sickness. We don't know if when Paul got to Corinth, he was sick in his body. Maybe he was tired and weary in the journey. We know he had a thorn in the flesh with his eyes. We're not totally sure what he means by weakness, but we know that physically he was not feeling his best. We know that he had some fear. How many of you remember a few minutes ago when the Lord said to him, don't be afraid? He said that because he had fear. And then notice that word trembling. He's trembling in his gospel proclamation. Verse number four, he says, my speech, my message Preaching and proclamation, it was not in persuasive or plausible words of wisdom. Paul says, I did not come to you to compete with the sophists, the philosophers in Corinth. That wasn't my goal. How did he come? Verse number four. I'm sorry, end of verse number four. He says, but I came in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power of God so that your faith may not rest. Don't raise your hand. Anybody found yourself struggling to rest lately? Somebody said to me yesterday, for the last two years I've slept two hours a night. Just need some rest. There's anxiety. There's angst. Paul says if you want rest, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it in the wisdom of men. You are not going to get rest in who you are in Christ, what you've been called to do. You're not going to get it from the wisdom and philosophy of this world. 
You're going to get it through the power of God. We call that pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There are those things that we say we believe. You know, we say we believe the Holy Spirit indwells the believer because that's what the Scripture says, Romans chapter 8. If any man has not had the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. We believe the Holy Spirit is, is in us to be our comforter, our paraclete, to help us along the way. We believe that the Holy Spirit is in us to empower us. So we say that we pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit, that we would be filled with the Spirit so that we can do the work of the ministry. And I believe that God is doing supernatural things today. I do think we get a little scared sometimes as in our circles we get a little scared because we see some things that are weird that we would say are not of the Spirit. But let's back up just a minute and say we believe that the Spirit does supernatural things. And that the ministry that we have, including every Sunday when I sit right over here on this front row, both services, and by God's grace, I try to study and prepare and go through the text. I try to have something to say. <laughs> or whoever preaches up here, Mitch will be up here next week. We come up here, we've, got, we've studied, we've worked through the text. Now, here's what I know. You can get up and present yourself well, or you can give a sermon that sounds intelligent and cohesive. but not have the power of God on the sermon. You can get up here and play an instrument. You can get up here with a microphone and sing and sing well. You can get up here, you can get up here and sing and preach things you don't even really believe or practice. How many of you know that's possible? So here we are. Here we are in this world, this culture. Christianity and culture. Pastor, what do we need today? Well, we can make a list a mile long. But I would suggest to you the greatest thing we need right now today is a display and a demonstration of the power of God. That the Holy Spirit would move in such a powerful way that there would truly be lasting fruit. I'm not talking about emotional experience. I'm talking about something that happens in all of us and through us. Do you really believe today that this church would be effective and even more powerful if we were all focused on daily living in the power of the Holy Spirit? That instead of being so unsettled and so chaotic because we're reading social media and listening to the news and this is going on and that's going on, what if we just got really focused and we said, God, I don't want to lose my kids. I don't want to lose my family. God, I don't want to see you divide our church. God, please help us. Spiritual warfare is raging right now. So what do we need? Well, we need another book at Lifeway. No, we got enough books at Lifeway to choke a horse. What do we need today, church? Do you, do you, 
Do you, I'm just asking you, I'm going to close them. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? What if, what, if, what if we, what if us pastors, we said, you know what? There's never going to be another Sunday. Never. But we just go through the motions. But we want to see a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, a key phrase in my life, I'm 50 moving forward. You're probably going to hear me say this at some point, maybe real soon. Because I ain't got time for that. You know why? Because the hour is urgent. Right now, the hour is urgent. We need to be focused on Jesus Christ crucified and the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your head with me?